morning, everybody. Invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, continuing our series or returning to our series in the book of Romans. Um, today we're talking about the benefits of justification, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. If you're using a Bible there in front of you, there'll be page 914. 914. Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, we gather this morning and so many different life situations. Lord, we gather to know you, to learn about you. And I pray, Father, that as we reflect on this passage, which talks so much about our struggles, our suffering, and the hope that is ours because of being justified, that you might encourage, that you might speak particularly to those that need words of encouragement this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at some lofty themes in our series in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 through 4. We spent seven weeks talking about Romans 1 through 3, uh, talking about an understand, understanding the human race, We've looked at four studies already in Romans, the latter part of three and four, on the theme of sola fide, uh, only faith or faith alone. And now we're coming to chapter five. And the unifying subject of all the things that we've studied has been Paul's discussion on how a person can have a personal relationship with God. We have seen that we need a validating performance record that opens the door to that relationship. And he's talked to us about this. He said some surprising things about it. He's raised lots of questions related to it. And I'd like to just remind us of four quick questions that I think Paul has raised and answered to just sort of bring us back up to speed as we enter chapter 5. Um, basically, Paul has been talking about credentials for acceptance with God. And the basic question Paul has been raising is, what is the qualifying standard for acceptance with God? 
And basically what he presents to us is what the whole Bible presents to us. It is total righteousness, complete righteousness. Righteousness being doing what's right. Uh, it is, it is um, complete obedience, complete holiness, complete righteousness. And of course that leads to a second question that Paul raises. Well, who qualifies? And his answer is a resounding one in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 where he says there is none righteous, no not one. And into this sobering scene where Paul has presented, okay, here's the standard to qualify for relationship with God. Um, unfortunately, nobody makes it. The question then is, well, what hope do we have? And basically what Paul is saying to us is in our own abilities, in our own resources, in our own performance, not much. Uh, there really isn't hope there. We don't measure up. We don't qualify. But he makes a giant change in Romans chapter 3, beginning verse, verse 21, where we started the Sola Fide series, where he says, but now. He says there's a righteousness that is apart from keeping the law that has been provided for God, by God to us. And basically he says, look, there's a new way. There's a way because God knows nobody is going to measure up to the standard of righteousness. Nobody is going to make it. We could have, but we opted not to by putting God, displacing God as the Lord and center of our lives, doing our own will, not his. So he says God has provided a new way, and that is found as Romans 3 verse 21 says, this righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. We can be accepted on the basis of someone else's performance. In Christ, we can gain a verdict of acceptance. So his fourth question that he's been talking about is, how can we gain this acceptance? How can this be ours? And he says it's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's personal faith in Christ. It's, it's claiming what Jesus Christ did and coming and dying on the cross for us, but also particularly living his life for us, uh, living the life that we should have lived. And the result of that is because of Christ, we can be declared righteous, declared acceptable into a relationship with God. We have that validating performance uh, record that opens the door to relationship of God through what Jesus has done for us. The interesting thing is, in which Martin Luther pointed out with his Latin phrase, uh, simul uh, justice et peccator, which literally meant simultaneous or at the same time, we are both righteous and a sinner. And basically, while still sinners, we are declared righteous on the basis of someone else's righteousness. Now Paul shifts in chapter 5, and he, he starts talking very practically, and he says, okay, if you have received this position and you have been declared righteous, you have been accepted into relationship with God, is there any practical value? And what difference does it make in your lives? And Paul is going to argue here in chapter 5 and say, this is not only valuable for your eternal destiny, this is valuable for your daily life not only in the good times, but notably, particularly in the bad. And in chapter 5, the, verses 1 through 11, he's presenting three benefits of being declared righteous, of being justified. The first two we're going to look at a little shorter than the third because most of the text is related to the third, but they're all here. And the first benefit we get of being declared righteous is that we have peace with God. 
Notice verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the same as peace from God. Paul talks about that a lot in his letters. We have peace from God. Uh, This is a uh, tranquil uh, serenity uh, that is a calm and satisfied heart in the midst of troubles. Philippians 4 verse 7 and other places. It is peace in regards to the cares of the world. It is a subjective changing thing. We sort of go in and out of that peace. When we lean into God and embrace that peace and when we sort of try to do life on our own, we are peaceless. That's a peace from God and it is in regards to the cares of the world. But here, it is peace with God. The hostilities between God and us are now over. This is peace in regards to God. And it's objective. It is not subjective. It's not changing. It's not based on on our whims or how we live or what we choose. It's a positional reality. We have peace with God in a relationship standpoint. To just play this out a little bit. Until salvation, until we enter that relationship with Jesus Christ, there is a war going on between God and us. Now, disobedience to God really involves two things. First of all, it involves you claiming kingship over your life, yourself, and your world. It is basically saying, uh, I'm going to be king, I'm going to rule, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to do it my way, um, and that's, how, that's what disobedience is. We're going to say we're the king. But here's the problem. God also claims lordship over those same things. He claims lordship over your life. He claims lordship over your little world, your, your heart and your life and your little world. And the result, whenever there are two vying uh, reigns of vying monarchs for the same turf is conflict, war. That is the inevitable result. And our uh, determination to live life apart from God, do it our way, is actually a declaration of war. You say, well, I never meant to do that. I mean, I'm just, I'm just doing life on my own. I don't, I don't care what God does. He can do what he wants. I'm running his universe. Fine. Uh, I just want to do my little tiny piece here. Well, that's the problem because God is sovereign, supreme. He is the creator. And if it is true, the Bible's claim that he has created you He has created you in his own image. He has created you with the capacity and the design to know him. He has created you with a God-shaped vacuum within your heart that only he is designed to fill. He has created the engine of your life to run on the fuel of his work in your life. That he has designed you where he will be center. And he has designed life to work perfectly, beautifully, wonderfully. But it functions when he is at the center. When we declare, I will do it my own way, which we regularly do, it's what sin always is, when we displace God at the control center of life, sin, we are creating an atmosphere of hostility. We are saying, this little turf, you can run the rest of it, but this little turf is mine. What that does, secondly, is what it does in relative to God 
it causes a problem for God with us. You see, we are not just hostile to God in a sense of declaring war against some milquetoast backwater potentate, but the creator king of the universe, the sovereign king who literally spoke everything that exists into being, who created, as, as the theologians called it, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created when there was no matter. There was nothing in existence. He brought it all into being, and he is the life source of it all. And when we declare you can run your universe, just don't run mine. You can do your thing, just, may, just let me do mine. We are declaring, the Bible says, hostility towards God's reign. And we may say, oh, I, I, I really, I, I didn't plan on that. I mean, I didn't think about God at all. I mean, I'm just doing my thing. But the reality is, God, who through the first three chapters of Romans we'll see, has made himself known. Uh, he has inherently built his conscience into our being. He has built his, his voice in all of creation around us. He has revealed himself. He says there is culpability for living our lives apart from the influence and the intervention and the lordship of God. All of our acts of rebellion and disloyalty, our countless sins of self-centeredness and pride and lust and vanity are actually under the sentence of God's uh, judgment. And, and there's a phrase, there's a word that he uses to describe this. It's in Romans 5, uh, 1 through 11. It's also been seen a couple of times earlier, and it's a word none of us like. It's the word wrath. It's God's wrath, W-R-A-T-H. Um, we don't like it, and I don't like it because of what I associate with it. And the word wrath in our minds is associated with a vindictive, vengeful, uh, out-of-control, emotional anger, which is not what the word is referring to at all. It is rather referring to a settled, just sentence of judgment upon those that throw back into God's face that we will run our own little kingdom in the midst of his vast kingdom of the cosmos. And this wrath is simply God's sentence of judgment. And what he says to us is, this is where we are. Now, we can't just say to God 30 years into, you know, living our, our own way and say, Ty, you know what? You're right. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. You know, I, the, my life's totally screwed up, and, and the universe seems to be going pretty well. So, you know, you're right, God. You're in charge. Because there is 30 years of rebellion and hostility and, 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 and that which has accrued, it says uh, wrath is being stored up against the day of wrath. It's basically saying there's judgment being stored up. And he says, this needs to be dealt with. These, these acts you've done, these, the, these self-centered behavior, these, these prideful responses, the whole way you've lived your life. He says, these things need to be dealt with. And God says this to us, and this is what Romans is saying. I will provide a way. I will provide a way for people who have declared war on me, who have thrown off my authority in their lives, who have sought to live their own little kingdoms, who have completely done life their way, actually rejecting me, but I will provide a way that we can be brought back into communion, but it will cost me my son. And so here's what he did, and that's what Romans 3 is telling us. He sent Jesus Christ to do two works for us. 
He sent Jesus Christ, first of all, to bear the wrath, that sentence of judgment, in our place. And he is literally accounted as if all of the things that we did, sinful behaviors, thoughts, words, deed, uh, everything, it's as if Jesus Christ committed all of those as he received your sentence. He died the death you should have died. And I mean that spiritual death, eternal death. He died the death you should have died. Secondly, in order for us to be acceptable to have the validating performance record of righteousness, he lived his life for all those years on earth, 30-something years. He lived the life we should have lived, and that record of that life was laid on us. We became liable for his righteousness. He became liable for our unrighteousness. It is the ultimate best win-win deal for us in history, cosmic history, where he says, I'm going to provide a way. And God says this, I'm doing all this for one reason. I'm providing a way that we, you and I, can be at peace, that there can be reconciliation, that you can have relationship with me. And Paul is saying the result, if you have been declared righteous through the work of Jesus Christ, and you're putting your faith in him, is you are at peace with God. But there's more than that. He says, secondly, you have access to God. Verse 2, through whom, Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We can not only develop a lack of hostility, but infinitely more than that, develops because of this work of justification. Now, we know that any time you want to develop a personal relationship with a powerful dignitary, somebody has to be a go-between for you. Uh, we stand in a position of grace, he says, uh, that is prompted, uh, that has pr provided acceptance with God because we have access into his very presence through Jesus. A few years ago, I spoke to... Um, an organization, I spoke to a gathering, an Easter dinner that was put together by Crew Ministries, formerly Campus Crusade, up in New York City. They have headquarters, they have, a, they have a, um, a center right down the street from the United Nations, and they have a ministry to the United Nations. And I was invited to speak, had the honor of speaking to ambassadors from, from all the continents of the world actually were there, represented there. And as I spoke at this, at this dinner, and I was to give a message about the message of Easter to them, and from all different religious backgrounds, all different cultural backgrounds, all different governmental uh, backgrounds, and I, w I had a, um, a briefing time with the director of the center beforehand, and he said, all right, I just want to tell you who's going to be here. And he says, you know, be beyond our staff, there will be three types of people that will be here. One there will be staff for the ambassadors. These are people that are appointed by their nation. They are from their nation. They, they, are, they are honored people in their nation, but they're basically staffed to the ambassadors. And he said, this is the title. And he gave me the titles that they would be recognized by, and there were formal titles, and they had formal badges that would identify them with certain colors and everything else. Secondly, there are the ambassadors themselves, and these are individuals. Most nations have a, a number of ambassadors that serve uh, from their nation that come over and, and to the United Nations, and they serve with the premier center one 
ultimately presidentially appointed ambassador for the nation. So you have these, these, these ambassadors that are support ambassadors as well as the staff, and then you have one ambassador from one country, and these, of course, and, and literally, he gave me a list of probably 12 words, words like eminence, and I can't even remember. I wish I'd written them all down. Some of them, I didn't even know what they meant, but they were um, very dignifying uh, adjectives and titles, titles particularly. And so he said, um, and when they come, you, you need to acknowledge there's different ways you greet each of these three peoples. And by this time, my head's spinning. I'm sure he was picking it up. And he said, you know what? Don't write any of this down. Just stand next to me. <laughs> so I was happy to do that. So we were in a receiving line, and they came in, and people were very polite, very formal. And it was just as he said. I mean, he, he, he used those titles, and he knew exactly which ones to give. And then he would introduce me. I did not have a whole paragraph full of titles. It's very disappointing. Just, this is Pastor Mark Willie from Fellowship Community Church. Really? <laughs> Eminence? Nothing? Um, but, but they would come through. And I, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness. Imagine if I walked down to the United Nations and, and had not met these people here. And I went to their office and I said, you know, by the way, I'd like to see um, so-and-so, the, the, uh, your eminence, blah, 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 ambassador from so-and-so, I'm, I'm Mark Willie. I mean, it would be laughable, the thought that I could possibly get an audience with these individuals. There would be so many barriers. But there I was because someone had already earned the right to have relationship and I was being introduced Maybe an even more powerful illustration is, is years ago, and I've mentioned this before, but it's perfect for this. When I was doing the Sixer Chapel, when Bruce McDonald was doing the Sixer Chapel, and I was the backup guy when he couldn't be there. And uh, one of the times I was over there, it was one of the first times I was there in the new building, when they were in the Wells Fargo Center. And you got before games, when you were doing chapel, you, you went out to the court, you greeted the players, you tried to catch their eye, um, you invited them personally, you went into the locker rooms, you invited players from both, both locker rooms, told them where it was, put up signs. And I was out on the court, and of course I'm there, and I'm getting the ball, you know, as it comes my way, and flipping it back to the guys. <laughs> but, um, and uh, I, I, I'm just imagining, just thinking, could I, could I hit a three-pointer from here? You know, and, and, and I turned, and there was a guy coming out of the tunnel, and it was Pat Croce. Pat Croce is the, was the president of the Sixers. And I knew, I knew Bruce was, was appointed to the staff of the Sixers. He actually had that title, but I, I didn't really know. We had never talked about his relationship to Pat Croce or anything. Um, and I didn't know Pat at all. And he comes out, and that was eminently obvious as he looks, and he sees me, and he says, Hey, who are you? And I knew exactly how to respond. Well, Pat, thank you for asking. I'm, I'm Mark Willie. I played small forward at Cherry Hill East High School and uh, played a little small college ball. Um, yeah, I also, I'm pastor of Fellowship Community Church. You probably heard of us. We had 16,000 on Nativity a couple of years ago, and maybe you came. Now, I didn't say any of those things. Hey, who are you? Uh... I'm a friend of Bruce McDonald, and he's the chaplain, and I'm doing chapel tonight. 
And here was his response. Bruce McDonald. I love Bruce. He said, Bruce, he says, Bruce, a great guy. He said, oh, Chaplain, thanks for coming tonight. And he said, he says, Chaplain, is there anything we can do? Thanks for coming tonight. And they walked away. You notice what he didn't say? He didn't say, what's your name? Where do you pastor? What was your point average in high school for your team? <laughs> I had nothing. He didn't ask for one. I had one credential to be there and not get yanked off the court. I knew Bruce McDonald. I was there on the basis that Bruce had credentials that he had earned by relationship with Pat and all the other members of the organization, and I just used his name to get in. I had access to stand at the court, to go into the locker rooms, to go down to the family's lounge and eat dinner at the cool buffet with the families because I came on the credentials totally of somebody else. Paul is saying to us here, I got incredible news if you've been justified, if you've been declared righteous in Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You not only have a removal of the hostilities, you have intimate, personal access to this cosmic, sovereign God every day, 24-7, wherever you walk. You are encouraged to talk to him about your problems and your concerns, to share with him your delight and your joys because he has provided access for you to know him and enjoy him. And Paul says all this comes because you're justified through Christ. But he says the third thing, and this is actually the one where, where he focuses, although it won't take a lot more time. But he says third we are given joy. Beginning at verse 2, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Some translations say it. we boast some glory. The idea is, is this is where our pleasure is, our, 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 our joy, our glory. It is in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God referred to here is referring to heaven. It's the same way it's used in Hebrews 2.10 where it says God brings his sons and daughters to glory. And he says, we have hope in this. Now, hope in our language means, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. We, we have something we desire without any certainty of receiving. That is not what it meant in the Greek language. What it meant to them was it was an expectation. We expect to go to heaven and live in God's glory. That Paul is saying, this is something we have. If you have received Christ as your Savior, you can absolutely have a full, confident expectation that you have eternal life with him because, as 1 John says it so beautifully, this is eternal life. He that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. It's an expectation, he says. But there's something more that he says here in verse 3 and following. He says, it isn't only joy in the future. Your glory is here in a very unique place. Look at verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice and boast in our sufferings. Say, Paul, have you lost your mind? Well, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, we also rejoice 
for our sufferings. This would be masochism. Now, some people do that. Some people need to feel punished in order to deal with their sense of unworthiness and guilt, and so suffering has some therapeutic value. Some people take pleasure in sufferings because it makes them feel superior to those who have an easier life. Some people actually believe that suffering is a part of earning their way to God. None of those things are involved in what Paul's talking about here. He says we don't have joy for our sufferings. We have joy in our sufferings. That we are rejoicing not finding joy in the actual trouble but knowing of the benefits that sufferings bring. That Christians look through the suffering to the certainties on the other side of them. The troubles will only increase their enjoyment and appreciation of those certainties and realities on the other side of troubles. And so what Paul is going to do here is tell us this, this process, simple process, that God uses to those who have been justified to use troubles and sufferings in their life to bring about great, great good. And the threefold process is here in verse 3 and 4. He says, first of all, we know that suffering produces perseverance. Suffering leads to endurance. The word perseverance here is from two words in the original, remain under that we endure under it. The weight's upon us. It's squeezing us. And it's just how troubles feel. It's just crushing you down. There are times, if you've lived your life, and remember, this is all God-centered, and it's saying that, that maybe you're a Christian. You've been in a situation, and, and your early walk, there is just pressure on you, suffering on you, and you feel, I can hardly breathe. I don't honestly see if I can, uh, that I can live through this. The emotional pain, the, 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 the mental strain, the exhaustion, the, the spiritual overwhelming pain of it. Some of you are probably there right now. It, it, it was hard to even face getting out of bed this morning with the pain of suffering, just feeling under that. But what Paul is saying is sufferings help us to face those things that we think will kill us. And we endure and, and we look through it and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to bolt. I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to face this. But I don't know if I can live through it. And we endure. We stay under it, which leads to a second thing. Endurance leads to experience. He says perseverance, enduring, leads to character. The word character is actually the... the uh, a term that revealed to something that had been placed in the fire. And stuff was, the dross of the metal was burned off. The, 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 the useless part is actually burned off. And what happens, it brings out a, what's called a proven or tested vessel. And this is the word that's used here. He says, through experience of the, of the, of the, the fire, the, the enduring experience, we're tested. Now, here's what he's saying. He says, here's what happens. You go into this thing and you hardly feel you can live through it. You, it just, it's, it's so overwhelming and painful. But you do endure. And you make it through. And somehow you, 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 you get through time. You look back and you say, you know what? I don't think I want to do that again. But I'll tell you, I do want to do, I want to learn what I learned through it. What I learned about God 
the things I learned about myself that I needed to face, the dross that was burned off, I have grown in my experience. I have grown in my awareness that these things were used of God to bring great beauty. I've learned in my experience that God really is too wise to make mistakes and too good to be unkind. I've grown in my experience. And what happens is what happens to ball clubs. You know, ball clubs very rarely do teams um, go to the playoffs for the first time and, and go all the way and win the championship. Usually they get in and, and they're, you know, they're filled with the jitters, and all the things that come with the early playoff games uh, or, or series where, you know, all of a sudden there's, there's heightened attention where every game, every, every play is magnified, where everybody, it's friend and family wants tickets, where, where you just are constantly being interviewed. It's just a new, it's a new thing. And most teams go once, get a little ways in, and then they come back, and, and they work their way up. Through experience, they perform well because they have been there before. And Paul is saying endurance leads to experience. But here's the beauty. Experience leads to expectation. And character, which is that experience, leads to Hope. I already said hope in the New Testament. The word literally means expectation. It's a confidence. You become confident that God is not going to waste experiences in your life. You become confident even in the worst moments of your life, your worst losses, your biggest griefs. As you have submitted to God's work in your life, you find he really did bring beauty out of ashes, even though you still bear some of the scars. You still bear some of the pain. The memories are still hard. But you say, you know, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. What I got to know about God. And so new experiences come. And there is an expectation. Maybe God will show up again. You know, I've done timelines with a lot of people, a lot of our leaders here, I'd say, I don't know if I've ever done a timeline with somebody which is just basically looking at life experiences over their whole life and, and where did you learn most in your, in your journey? Inevitably, it's those hard experiences where people say, that's really where I came to know God. That's really where I came to see things in myself. I didn't see in prosperity where, when life was, was easy, in an easy state. And what you learn is you see through the circumstances. So, so Paul says what you're going to find is you grow in your Christian journey, you who are justified, you who are in God's family, that through the endurance, which leads to the experience, and the experiences lead to expectation that if you're there right now, Paul would say, this is why you've had these experiences. They remind you that God didn't desert you. There was, he allowed things that maybe you would have chosen not to allow and maybe you don't want to do again, but he has shown you, he has been faithful, he has been processing with you, and he can be trusted here, that he's not a God who wastes experiences. And this hope, Paul says, will see you through life experiences, no matter how dark. And then he tells us one other thing. Why can we count on that to be true? And that's what he says in verse 5 through 11. I'm just going to summarize it. Verse 5 says this, and hope and expectation does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out his love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. 
what he's saying is you can have confidence and expectation. You can count on God being at work for good in your life because you are the beneficiaries of God's love. Verse 5, it was poured into your heart in the presence of the Holy Spirit because you are the object of God's love that he he who he loves, he chastens, that he is for you, that he is using circumstances in your life to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus. And he also raises the question, when did God do this great work in you? I mean, was it, and you say, well, I, I can't, that can't happen now. I mean, I'm, I'm here because I screwed up so bad, because I was such, I made such a mess of my choices. I mean, I can't trust God to bring beauty out of these ashes. So Paul says this to us in verse 6 and 8. He says, when did God do this great work in your life of pouring his love into you? In verse 6, it was when you were powerless. In verse 8, it's when you were sinners. If you were saved by his life, he said, by his death, he says, how much more will you be saved by his living, his life in you? Even when you see yourself most ugly, when you see yourself most a failure, he says, God is still working in those situations because he's poured his love into you. Because in the past, this is when he's chosen to work in you. Romans 8 says it this way, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul says a tremendous hope in this. Because you've been justified and you're in God's family, all of the experiences of your life are being used by God to shape you into his image. No one can say, because I screwed up so bad, God has turned his back on me, is rejecting me, is punishing me. Even if his love requires him taking something or some things from you that are in the way of you experiencing the fullness of his love, he is not punishing you. You are not under wrath. You are not under a, 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 an object of his wrath. That was taken place because you were justified. You were declared righteous because all of that has been poured out on someone else. You can say with absolute confidence, whatever is going on in my life, even where God is having a discipline because I totally messed up, you're not the object of wrath. You're not the object of condemnation. You're not the object of penal retribution of God. It is still because he loves you. It is still because he desires to shape you to more and more have you see through the trials and embrace the reality of his goodness and that he is for you. Then he concludes in verse 11 with this. He says, ultimately, suffering helps us to find our joy in God himself. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The ultimate goal of suffering allowed in our lives is that we might make God the centerpiece of our joy. Recently, we had a guy in our church uh, get videotaped. It's, uh, it's out of the church house out there. And I want to just tell you a little bit about it. I won't say anything that he's going to say in the video. Harold Eversall was a young man in our church, uh, met a young woman, got married to Sean. And over the last 30 years, they're now into their, their 50s, uh, Harold and Sean have served in the nation of Bangladesh. Uh, they have been a part of our church family all that time, were married through our church, and Harold oversees the work of all the, the, the mission work in Bangladesh, 
which includes the oversight of a very large hospital, um, many other humanitarian and gospel enterprises throughout the country. They have given their life to the people, the Bengalis. Physically, Harold is, has been a runner since high school. I have said this often. This isn't the first time I'm saying this. Uh, for a guy in his mid-50s, he is, without question, the most physically fit man I know. His body fat count is in single digits. He has been recently training to run the Boston Marathon. And a few, three months ago, he received a diagnosis, and he's going to tell us about the journey that he has been on. It's five minutes. In Psalm 118, verse 1, we read a great verse there, and it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And I've seen that during these past three months since I was diagnosed with leukemia. And I want to thank you for your part in that, as you've partnered with us in praying for me and for my family during this time. As I look back, it's really amazing to see what God has done within a couple month period. About the time I was diagnosed, I had lost 40 pounds and I needed help just to be pulled up one stair. But uh, God has worked in amazing ways. And through the first chemo, after the first chemo, the white blood cells had dropped clear down to normal from 550,000 down to about 4,500. The doctor was like practically giddy and said, man, you guys have got to have a lot of people praying for you. This is absolutely amazing. And we said, yeah, you're right. We do have a lot of people praying for us and we want to praise God. During this time, I've lost a lot of what I valued the most. That is the ability to be involved in strategic, exciting ministry in Bangladesh. God hopefully will give that back to us. We don't know the future. And then I've always been kind of a fitness buff. And to lose all your strength and all your endurance, not be able to jog a step, hardly be able to walk a step, that was tough. But God used it to show me something, and that was, you know, maybe those things are getting a little bit too important. Your identity does not depend on how fast you run how much you lift, or the job that you're involved in. Your identity is based on the fact that you're my child, and that is enough, and as long as you have me, you truly, as in Psalm 23, do not lack anything. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy. It's really hard. In Hebrews 12, we read, discipline is always painful. No discipline is pleasant at the time, but it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who undergo it. And that's my prayer, that God will just use this time in my life to build me into being more and more the person that he wants me to be, to get rid of some of those idols that might have been holding me back, maybe too much of an emphasis on job performance, maybe too much of an emphasis on physical performance, I believe that God has and will continue to bring good out of this. In Psalm 118, we read, I will not die, but live 
and I will proclaim all that you have done for me. And so that's what I want to do. I really feel that God has given me that promise that I'm going to live at least for a while. <laughs> and that means an opportunity to proclaim his name. I don't know how long God's promise to me that I will live and proclaim his name here will stand. Once you have CLL, you've got it for life, for however long that means. It might mean decades, and it might not, but that's okay. Because as Paul said, hey, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So either way is not a major problem. Really what we've got to see is our goal is not to beat cancer. We've got to see the cancer or whatever suffering we're going through as a tool that God is using to work in our lives. The goal is to beat the sin nature, to work with God and see self-defeated so that we can really live the life of Christ. So God's going to take what gets in the way give us himself and allow us to live the life of Christ. And that's why the psalmist can say, hey, it was good that I was afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I focus on you. I'm not the only one going through suffering. Probably a lot of you are going through a lot more than I am. But I hope all of us can learn from this that God is doing good. He's working in our lives for our good and for his glory. And so all of us can say together, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Apostle Paul encourages us to find our joy in God himself in the midst of sufferings. That's what Job learned. That's what I think Harold is saying. Job, with his incredible sufferings, was uh, asking God for answers, asking God to remove things, to change things. And God basically just showed him himself. So we're closing our service this morning going to have a, sing, a song that we're going to ask you to sing with us. It's not a song about trials. It's a song about God. It's losing our focus from whatever it is that's weighing us down in the vastness of the, the grandeur of the bigness of God, of a God who says he's poured his love into us, it, that he didn't spare his son. He's not going to spare anything else. Let's stand together and sing this song together, Your Great Name. <laughs>